check. Check, is this thing on? I think I know what I'm doing. All right, guys, welcome back to Fade to Gray. If you haven't figured it out yet, this is Elizabeth, and I'm about to take over the Fade to Gray podcast. Mwahaha. I'm joined today by my friends Rhea, Liz, Seth, and Chad. And we're going to talk about schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia. These are heavy topics, but you know what? We wanted to share our thoughts and ask questions and have a discussion of our own. So that's why I'm taking over. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, this is Seth, uh, a member of the Fade to Gray Roundtable group. And today I'd like to introduce another segment of Fade to Gray. Um, And to explain a little bit about that and what we're going to talk about today, uh, let me introduce Elizabeth. Elizabeth? Hey, guys. I'm Elizabeth Williams. I'm Omar's wife. I've been on the podcast a couple times. Uh, If you go check out our interview with Sue Molnar about the Palestinian refugee crisis, I was on that episode. And I was asked by the Fade to Gray guys to go ahead and take uh, an episode or two uh, and bring on some of my lady friends to talk about things we're interested in and things we think others may uh, find helpful. So I'd like to introduce two of my friends. I've got Liz and I have Rhea. Hey, I'm Rhea. Hey, I'm Liz. So Liz, could you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself for our listeners so we kind of get a sure. feel of who you are? Sure, so I'm Liz Breyer. I am not Omar's wife. Uh, <laughs> I am Adam's wife. Uh, and uh, what do you need to know about me? I am a stepmom. I am part of the bad Christian community. I have worked in the mental health field for about 20 years. And I rock. Uh, that's pretty much all you need to know about me. You do rock. <laughs> now, when you say you work in the mental health field, what is your title if you're able to share that. So I've had a couple of different roles. Currently, I work as a training and implementation specialist. So I train social workers, mental health clinicians, other support staff uh, in uh, what the state of New York considers best practices for them to be able to do their jobs uh, and work with the people we work with more effectively. But I've done a bunch of different things. I've mostly worked in administration, you know, running programs, supervising. I am not a licensed mental health professional, so I don't do the actual clinical work, but uh, I've worked in support of those who do and also as an advocate, which sometimes puts me on the other side of that table. Um, but I'm usually able to go back and forth between the two fairly easily. So, um, yeah. And I love the advocacy piece. That's actually my favorite part. That's fantastic. And Rhea, welcome to the podcast. Could you introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us who you are other than awesome. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll get into detail stuff later, but I'm Rhea and I am a 32-year-old wife and mom, and I have another podcast called Depth of Echoes. It's all about mental illness and our life with it. I'm not a professional. I'm just somebody who was faced with really serious psychiatric illness in my husband and met it head on. So we wanted to talk about it and 
really found a lot of community uh, just underneath the surface of the basically like quote unquote normal world, right? So yeah. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride. It's been a lot of fun, but it's been a little crazy too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we have heard the Fade to Gray guys talking about mental illness in one of their episodes, and it just sparked a bunch of conversation among the uh, people that follow and those of us who listen and those of us who are in the roundtable. And we thought, you know what? This is such a big topic. It's such a big uh, thing to discuss. Let's break this down a little bit and come back to it. Uh, and we're going to speak specifically today about schizophrenia and uh, schizoaffective disorder and a few other things around those um, those illnesses. Uh, and the reason being so that we can dispel some of the myths and shine a light on what these uh, disorders and what these illnesses are and how to help people in those situations and how to just give some hope to those um, in this situation. So we have one more person that we're going to add to the conversation as well. We're going to bring back Chad Johnson. He was in one of our episodes at the beginning. So Chad, would you like to introduce yourself again, just in case uh, someone missed your episode? Tell us who you are and a little bit about yourself as well. Sure. I am Chad Johnson. I am a 40-year-old dad of two, been married for 17 years, and had a sister who suffered from a very severe mental illness that I was living at home when it all came about. Yeah, so as you can see, uh, we have a panel here of people that have, have experience, and so we're going to start by sharing some story. So Chad, would you mind uh, sharing what you're comfortable um, about this the story of your sister? Well, first of all, tell us a little bit about your sister, growing up with your sister. Sure. Well, she was a totally, I mean, you know, normal child as far as we were four and a half years age difference. And back in February of, well, I would say January of 99 is when I remember things kind of going weird. She was 15 years old and a uh, straight A student, a cross country like superstar, literally broke school records when it comes to cross country running. She was a model, um, very attractive teenage girl. I definitely, you know, could have had any boyfriend she wanted. And uh, mid 1998, she, uh, you know, in what we would call in the Christian world was saved. I decided to follow Jesus, was baptized, that whole deal. About six months later, if you would like, would you like for me to go into detail of kind of how the illness all popped up? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about her symptoms, like how, what were some signs that she was changing? Um, what were some things your family saw that were different? Yeah, definitely. I mean, she, you know, was very, uh, as every child when the internet first came out, she was very active on the internet. And I, when I look at you know, I lived in the same home with her. When I look at the things that I noticed personally, all of a sudden she stopped getting on the computer. Um, I noticed like late at night, she would crank up the stereo really loud in her bedroom and uh, she wouldn't sleep much. Just kind of a very, very odd, just things just changed. She, had a, she literally had a different look in her eyes, I would say, as I'm sure we'll get into that come to find out that's actually a symptom of schizophrenia when they kind of have that gaze 
I would say. But uh, long, she actually, she came to my parents and said, hey, I think some boy from the youth group at church, she goes, I think he is monitoring our house, is what she thought, which sounded very odd. I mean, we knew that a teenage boy could not monitor our house, right? So we just thought that she was just like, you know, didn't like the boy for whatever reason. We, could, we literally kind of blew it off as a family. We totally did not. We had no idea what schizophrenia was. We had never been exposed to it, knew nothing about it, you know. But then all of a sudden, one day, the school calls my parents and says, you know, come up here. And they said, we're going to put your daughter in a psych ward for 72 hours. Um, she has made comments that, um, you know, she's come to us and said, this boy is monitoring your home. And it appears that she's having psychotic type episodes. And she had made some type of comment that was borderline suicidal, although we have never seen, as a family, we've never seen her be suicidal. But they said that she had said something of that nature. So she went up to the, to the psych ward for 72 hours on what, you know, what they call like lockdown, I guess, where, you know, no one could uh, see her or anything. After three days, which was the longest three days probably of our family's entire life, I literally will never forget the moment uh, where my mom and dad walked in the house after coming from the school. It, it literally, it was emotional. But watching my mom come in and just slam those papers on the, on the kitchen counter um, after being told that your daughter, you know, has got something going on. Of course, and keep in mind, guys, I don't know everyone else's story yet, but 1999, no one talked about schizophrenia back then. This was a totally new thing. Um, we, you know, we heard about it on movies, you know, things of that nature, but we had no idea what it was or never knew anybody with it. I mean, we literally felt very much on an island. Uh, but yeah, that was the beginning. And she was actually diagnosed with uh, what you guys would probably call schizoaffective at different points. Um, the one, you know, where she had like bipolar symptoms and things of that nature. Uh, she had a little bit of bulimia at one point to go along with it all. Uh, but schizophrenia has been the one thing where if you list out the symptoms of schizophrenia, she's had every single one of them. Um, so the, the other ones have kind of been hit and miss. I mean, we're talking what now, 19 years, 19 and a half years. But it, it's been, um, you know, it, I think I told someone else in the group here recently that when I look at my family, so the last 40 years of my life, it's literally like pre-schizophrenia with my sister, post-schizophrenia. It's like two different lives, basically. It's um, It's been a real... And she lives at home with my parents now has, you know, they have, they are her legal guardians. Uh, it's been learning how to process it. And then when my wife came into the picture, you know, the trust, my parents don't trust people because people judge you with having that in the family. It's, um, it's, it's really, it's, it was tough in the late nineties, early two thousands. You tell somebody you have a family member that has schizophrenia and it's like, you got looked at very, very strange, very strange. Uh, one of the qualities of Melody, my wife, as you guys know, uh, she was very non-judgmental, and like when I met her, that didn't freak her out at all. Uh, I did freak other people out that I knew, other friends and stuff. But it, it, um, you, just watching my family process it, and and honestly, now my dad, he's still one of these that doesn't share any details. You know, he doesn't trust. Even he won't tell me a lot of things. He will after a while. Uh, my mom tells me almost everything though. And it's my mom's kind of my sister's, you know, how do I put this? She's the person my sister tends to take things out on, mm. which it, you know, when she has an anger outburst, 
it's against my mom, uh, things of that nature. And I've had one psychiatrist tell me that I'm one of the few males in my sister's life that she actually trusts over, over her lifespan. So, and it's been interesting because not all of them, she's had many different psychiatrists and psychologists over the last 19 years. And only a couple have ever even called me or got me involved at all, um, which has been very, I find that very odd too. But the one that did though, really shined a light on a lot of things. Um, and the, the bad part about this disease is that no one knows why, you know, and, and I know all you guys are going to probably share the same thing. No one knows exactly what causes it. There's all of these, you know, skeptical ideas, well, maybe she was abused, maybe she was this and that, uh, but no one knows for sure. There are, the one psychiatrist I spoke with with my sister did tell me that she thinks something happened to her around five years old um, that may have triggered something in there. But then again, the disease popped up, you know, 10 years later. Um, she had a little bit of, go ahead. Well, I wanted to ask about that. Um, first of all, when her symptoms came on, did you notice that that was gradual or sudden? And about what age was she when that occurred? I mean, keep in mind, Seth, I was, I was 20 years old at the time. So I was kind of having my own little life outside of home. For me, it happened. I felt like it happened very fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, like in about six weeks is what I mean. I remember like new years of January 99, like something kind of being weird, you know, uh, not being familiar with schizophrenia, though, that was the last thing on my mind. Yeah, so would that put her about, what, 16-ish? Or 15 or 16? She would have been 16 in July of 99. So she was almost six. She actually, yeah. at that point, and you guys can tell me if I'm, I'm wrong here, but it seems like back then they thought that was very young. It is. In fact, you can't be diagnosed with schizophrenia until you're 18, or that's, typically. I think Am that's I, changed, though. I think that's changing. It? Yeah, I think that's changing. I think they used to really not want to do that. But I think more and more it's happening now because now the thought behind it is the earlier you, you catch something and the interventions start earlier, you know, the better the prognosis long term. Um, but I think you're right. That used to be. And that went for all of the diagnoses, not just schizophrenia. Yeah. Well, I, two things I wanted to note. Um, specifically in looking at signs and symptoms. And if you have a family member who has um, a mental health disorder, and, and I would say regardless of what that disorder is, um, things to look for right away are sudden changes in behavior. Um, it, typically, uh, depression and anxiety is, is a little bit different in this regard, but like with schizophrenia, with schizoaffective disorder, uh, psychotic disorders, um, it's typically a very sudden change. Um, and 16, I, I mean, at least according to my education, is very young um, for those symptoms to present. And I would imagine that they wouldn't have provided that diagnosis, that they would have provided a bipolar diagnosis initially um, until more symptoms would present. Uh, but I, I can only imagine how difficult that was, Chad, uh, both for you and her. Yeah, it, and actually, I just thought about something, too. I, I had mentioned earlier when the school, you know, said that she had made a suicidal comment. After that, you know, she was a cross-country runner, so she ran much like I do now, you know, six, ten miles a day. And she did say that at one point she was having thoughts of jump, jumping in front of cars uh, when she was on her runs. So that was um, that was the one suicidal thing I remember her saying to us 
as a family. Um, but besides that, though, there was, and you know, one thing I know you guys will get into this probably, but myths about the disease. She's not violent. I, I'm not worried about my sister hurting anybody. Honestly, I'm okay with my kids being around her. It's not, she's not a violent person. As a matter of fact, she actually loves my kids very well. Um, you know, the only person she's ever been close to violent with is my mother because they, they tend to, um, she tends to take everything out on my mom, basically. But besides that, though, there's not, not a violent bone in her body. And then, you know, you hear of, well, mental illness causes this and, and causes people to go shoot up things and whatnot. I don't personally believe that. Um, my sister would not be able to orchestrate that. There, there's, she does not have the mental capacity to go. And she's a straight A. I mean, she literally had a 4.0 GPA. Before the disease hit, she could have went to any college she wanted with her athletic abilities combined with her academics. And she could not, in this mental state, orchestrate any type of major uh, mass shooting or something of that nature. I, I think of that because we tend to hear that people suffer from those things whenever they pull off a mass shooting or something. That's, that's the only reason I bring that up. Yeah. So where is she now then? Yeah, she lives with my parents. Uh, she has been literally over the, and literally two miles from us here. They, they live south of us. But over the last uh, 19 years, my mom and dad have really, especially my mom, has really been in denial of her disease and wanted her to live a normal life. And so um, her being an attractive female, she's never had a problem finding a boyfriend or things of that nature. So she's been married twice now. Mm -hmm. um, she's been through two marriages and divorced. Uh, she dates off and on. Actually, her latest boyfriend we just met at Thanksgiving, I was actually really impressed with. Um, he seemed to really care about her and that I'm, I'm praying honestly that he's, you know, that he gets it and he will take good care of her and love her for what she is. That's most of the people that get in a relationship with her. They literally have no idea what they're getting into. They, they just mm -hmm. don't. Um, and I, I don't feel that my parents do a good job explaining what they, what they're getting into. Well, I just want to say, Chad, that my husband has it and I knew going into it and it's definitely possible for her to find someone to love her well. And so hopefully I'll be praying about that too, that that is so where that goes. Honestly, Rad, listening to your adaptive echoes um, has given me hope on that. I'm be totally honest with you because I'm it's, glad. I, I would have just a few years ago, I would have said, you know what? She's going to be single forever. Mm -hmm. um, but hearing your story, that actually has given me hope. It really, it really has. I mean, I, I mean that with all sincerity because it's, and then after meeting this guy the other day, I'm like, you know what? Maybe the timing of this is not a coincidence mm. because it's, um, he, I'm a pretty good people reader. I read people well, and I've never really been a big fan of any of the males that have come into her life. This guy though, I mean, he's got his own personal baggage. Um, he's an ex-drug addict. I had a, you know, but I think because he's been through some things, that I think that gives him more grace to show her, you know, and that is um, people that have experienced things tend to be more graceful with mentally ill people, if that makes sense. Oh, I can attest to that for sure. <laughs> There's something I wanted to touch on, Chad, and I, you were in describing your sister, you mentioned um, that she's not violent. Um, and I wanted to touch on that um, because there is a myth. We were talking about myths. 
Um, there's a myth that, especially when we look at shootings and we look at these different things that are happening within our culture, we look and say, okay, that person must be mentally ill. And there's a stigma around that then to say that people who are mentally ill are violent or that they are aggressive or that they are the problem. Um, and, and just kind of mentioning, uh, according to Mental Health First Aid for America, uh, they, they touch on this in their training and they always teach that like if a person with a mental illness is having thoughts of hurting themselves or hurting someone else, they're far more likely to have thoughts of hurting themselves than they are others. Um, and I just, I, I wanted to touch on that because there's a myth under there. You weren't saying that she's violent or that she should be violent because of a mental illness, but I just think it's important that we note that stigma. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think we'll get into the stigmas in just a minute. I want to ha give Rhea a chance to share some of her story. And Liz, if you'd like to share some of your story as well, and then we'll move on to some of the terminology, uh, myths, terminology, and symptomology after that. So Rhea, we've mentioned the Depth of Echoes podcast. If you have not heard it yet, go check it out. She just released episode 20. Um, as of our recording date, she has 20 episodes out. She's working on more. They're really amazing. And it, she's sharing her story of how to love well one who suffers with schizoaffective disorder. So Rhea, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> excited to have you on. Could you share your story of um, you and your husband? Yeah, I'll try to be succinct here because <laughs> uh, we could go all over the place. But um, when I met Richie, I have been divorced and had a two-year-old and we met and um, thankfully my ex is not in our lives. So it's basically me, um, my oldest Zane and Richie. And um, he did tell me when we were dating that he had had schizophrenia and that he had been healed from it. And at the time, like he was very stable. Um, we both, he was at a more Pentecostal church where that was, you know, pretty normal to be healed from something, you know, um, dramatically or, or mm -hmm. to say that you're healed <laughs> yes. dramatically. Right. <laughs> um, so it was like, oh, okay. You know, and that made sense to me because I had spent some time in Pentecostal churches. I didn't have a problem with the idea of God healing someone. And then I also didn't really take into consideration that oftentimes that that is a symptom of schizophrenia. <laughs> uh, you know, God said yeah. I could stop taking my meds because I'm better yeah. now, you know, yeah, and, <laughs> right. and so um, I didn't really um, pay it too much mind. I was like, okay, that's fine. I can, I'm down with that, like that that was in your past or that you had had a, you know, some psychiatric issues or whatever. That's, that's fine with me. And then, um, kind of just nothing was really a big deal until about, oh, probably a year and a half into our marriage is when, um, stuff started coming back up. We had had a miscarriage and we lost the baby about mm, 11 and a half weeks. And it was really, physically traumatic and Richie really took it hard. It was very, very hard on him. Um, he had nightmares for months and stuff. And I think that was part of the stressor that started really bringing the psychosis back for him. He was working a lot. He was working like 40 to 60 hours every week. Um, 
Plus, he would work out for an hour or two every day before work, and then he'd come home. He was always really involved, so he might be cooking dinner or helping clean up the house or taking the kids to do something. Um, and it just, it, he kind of deteriorated. Like, he started, hmm, let's see, just seeming more stressed and distressed by how he was feeling and then saying gosh what was he saying I think he was saying that he was starting to have some of the voices come back and so we were trying to get him into treatment or just I mean going having him see anyone or talk to anyone about this was a nightmare for him because he had had um, experiences as a teenager where he was hospitalized and basically from what I understand or what he remembers of it his dad pretty much just dropped him off at the psych ward for the summer and pretty much sat there alone mm. <laughs> in the psych ward. And um, it was very, very hard and scary for him. Um, I can't remember exactly what age he was, but he was a teenager at that point. But um, his voices started around the summer when he turned nine because um, he has his own trauma in his history. Um, so going back, so fast forwarding, so he was starting to get more stuff happening. Trying to get him to see anyone or talk to anyone was really scary for him. He didn't want to have to go back on medications. He had had really bad experiences with them. Hated how he felt. Hated who he was on medication. Um, but when he did see someone, they started him on some stuff. And basically, it just kind of progressed and progressed where he would have to take sick days because he would need to be in bed or um, just not able to cope. Um, towards the end or towards the breaking point, he would sit on the couch curled up, um, into a ball and just kind of be kind of shaking a little bit. And then he would have to ask questions like, um, you know, is the house on fire? And like, is there anyone else in the room with us? Because he really couldn't tell, um, he told me later that like he had to ask a coworker one time if his wrists were okay. Cause he could feel and see them bleeding, you know? Um, and so the night it all came to a head, he was just sobbing in my arms, um, just saying he couldn't take it and he just needed it to stop and he just couldn't, he couldn't handle it. And, um, that night was, the hardest decision I ever had to make because I knew that it was like, okay, this is beyond me. It is absolutely time for the hospital. And I have to ask him to trust me in this moment where he doesn't trust anything, uh, to walk down back down his darkest path. And so he did. And it, all the experiences we'll get into details another time, but, um, he ended up having like five different psych stays over a year. Um, each of them were like 10 to 13 days. And finally, after the last couple, it was like, okay, you've got to stop working. He would try to go back to work and then the psychosis would start getting worse. And uh, we, he's now on disability because he cannot work right now as he is restabilizing and maybe someday he will be again. But, uh, yeah, he's definitely not at a point where he can work right now. Thank you for sharing, Rhea. 
If you guys want more detail, we'll talk more in this episode, but go check out our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to hog all the time. <laughs> no, you're good. Thank you. And Liz, so you have a story of your own. Would you like to share some of that with us? So I have had a mental health di- uh, diagnosis officially since I was 30, but I, and I'm 48 now. Um, I was trying not to give that away, but everybody else did. So okay. <laughs> I haven't divulged <laughs> that information yet, though. <laughs> <laughs> but I had, I can look back to my childhood to as young as like six or seven and recognize uh, some pretty significant mental health stuff going on, even, even as young as that. And probably even some, what I would, what I would describe as psychotic type of stuff, not, not voices. I never heard voices except for the voice of God, which we've all heard, right? But, uh, more like sounds. Um, yeah, sounds really. And sometimes I would see things, uh, that, pretty much any psychiatrist I would talk to today would say was psychotic. Um, but at the time we were going to a Pentecostal church. So that was all signs and wonders and not, not necessarily, uh, the sign of a mental health issue. Um, but fast forward to, you know, definitely got worse in my teenage years, definitely was dealing with a lot of depression and I pretty much just checked out of trying to live life like everyone else. Like I withdrew, I isolated, I almost didn't graduate high school because of it, of just never going. You know, I would get up in the morning and pretend like I was, you know, getting ready to go to school. And I lived with my grandmother in high school and she would go to work and I would just go back to bed. And that was pretty much my pattern for most of sophomore year and some of freshman year of high school. Um, But, uh, more importantly, I was really self-medicating because I knew something was wrong. So I was super drinking, binge drinking, uh, smoking weed, just really self-medicating to try to feel better. Because I think Chad said this, you know, if we didn't talk about mental health stuff in the 90s, we for sure did not talk about this in the 70s and 80s. It was just total taboo. So I just, you know, I knew I didn't feel right. I knew something was different and I just tried to take care of it as best as I could. But when I was 30 is when I officially like became diagnosed, went to see a psychiatrist and started having, um, more significant issues. I ended up though in 2000 and it's either 11 or 12. I'm forgetting which year I had heart surgery, but I had heart surgery, not open heart, but I had a a procedure for, um, called a cardiac ablation, which is where they basically go in through the leg and look for where the misfiring is happening in the heart. Cause I was having extra heartbeats 24 hours a day and they kind of burn it with a laser. They burn the signal so that it stops or it stops mostly. So after that, I ended up not being able to work because the recovery time took a lot longer than they had told me it would take. And I became super paranoid over the six months that I lived in my apartment, not leaving the house. You know, I was looking for work, but I was uh, struggling to find work at the time. And I just got more and more paranoid, more and more afraid of people, uh, more and more uh, unable to leave the house, uh, you know, suspicious that people were trying to kill me, suspicious that, you know, that there was all these government conspiracies, which... 
you know, I love a good conspiracy theory, but I have to tread very lightly into that <laughs> territory because it can easily go very bad for me and I can lock myself up in the house and not leave. You know, I wasn't like putting on a tinfoil hat, but I easily could have if somebody had come into the apartment and said, hey, you know, they're beaming messages into your brain. This will protect you. I probably would have done it like it got it got that bad. Um, and so finally, my husband uh, and we were getting into some pretty wicked fights also because of it, because he'd come home from work and I'd be like, oh, my God, the government and this and that just like freak out on him. God bless my husband. You know, he he's such a such a loving person. And it's a testament to how much he loves me because, you know, he took it in and he took it in. And then after, you know, this extended period of time, he was like, you got to go do something about this. Like, you, you need to go see somebody and talk to a psychiatrist. So I did. And that's when my last official diagnosis became depression with psychotic features. So I, I mentioned that because I think it's important for people to realize also that, you know, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, these are not the only forms of mental illness that can have a psychotic element to it. Uh, it can happen pretty much with all of them. And, you know, I have it pretty much under control now. I'm not currently taking any medication. I did for a while for it. I'm not right now. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty much okay, but I've become very, when I say, okay, I mean, I'm managing it. <laughs> I've become very aware of when I see myself going in that direction and I, I take steps to manage it and keep it from getting out of hand. So, you know, it's not, it's not, um, the specific diagnosis of schizophrenia or schizoaffective and a lot of ways I would say that it's actually easier to manage, um, in relation to, I don't have the, all of those overwhelming symptoms that people with those diagnoses can have, but it's no less debilitating. I mean, yeah. you know, each, each one of these conditions are debilitating in their own way. Yeah, so. for sure. Amazing people in my mind, like all uh, these three that have shared, Chad and Rhea and Liz, I've gotten a chance to spend some time with them on social media through our Marco Polo group and just hear their stories. I could plug that again. Um, and they just, um, to me, it's been encouraging to see them reaching out help for their own individual stories, their own individual uh, situations, because we have similarities, but ultimately we're all in a different, different spaces. Um, so I am going to move on. I know we could keep telling our story, but I want to move on a little bit. We asked our fan base on Facebook some questions over the Thanksgiving weekend. I apologize for my spelling mistakes. I will have someone spell check myself next time. Spell check me next time. I'm so excited <laughs> to hear this. Though. Yeah, so the first question I'm going to pose here, um, the purpose of this was to kind of get society's view of these uh, our topic today. So the first question was, what do you think of when you hear the word schizophrenia? Um, and a few of the answers, I'm not going to read all of them, but a few of them, uh, I think of people, I think of some people I've known who had a really rough go of it, but are ultimately kind people. Um, the people that I know, uh, they're ultimately kind people with this condition. Uh, another answer was imaginary friends and voices. And other people were saying they had family members that it, they thought of when they thought of schizophrenia. 
we had a question, true or false? Schizophrenia is the only mental health condition that can have psychosis. Um, most uh, everybody's resounding false. So you guys can, do you want to speak on that? I think that's encouraging to hear because, uh, you know, I think the fan, the fan base of Fade to Grey uh, has been a part of conversations in various ways, you know, already. I think if we were to put this out there to society in general, we would probably hear a different response to that. Uh, but maybe not. Maybe, you know, these conditions are really being talked about more often now or Conversely, more people are having these issues. And so um, that's bringing it to light more. But I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that, quite honestly, because uh, I think even 10 years ago, the answer to that would have been different. Yeah. We also asked what people knew about psychosis. And that one's had some interesting... Um, I want to talk more about psychosis because I'm not sure all of us understand. I know I don't fully understand what that is. Um, and that was kind of reflected in the people's comments. So um, one one of our listeners, or one of our fans said they, I don't know much, but they need medication to function with a question mark. Um, another uh, fan said, if she remembers correctly, it's a mental state. And although it can be chronic, it's not a condition in and of itself. It can be symptomatic, a handful of ongoing mental maladies but can also occur acutely as a result of drugs, trauma, or a sudden chemical imbalance. It looks different in different people, but often causes disassociation and specifically impaired decision-making ability. Uh, another uh, comment was hallucinations and delusions. So I'm going to turn this over to, um, to you guys because I I have heard the word psychosis. I understand the some of what you guys have said. Like, oh, okay, I can associate that with psychosis, so that must be psychosis. But I don't really know anything about it. Seth, you have your little pocket dictionary. Yes, I do. Well, I think that I mean honestly, I don't think that any of those answers were wrong. Um, I think that psychosis is a state of disorientation. Um, I don't think that it is permanent. I think it can come and go depending on the disorder. And as Liz was talking about earlier, like you can have depression with psychotic features. So I, I, I think psychosis is we're, we're looking at a, a mass uh, group. We're looking at a, a, a big heading um, for psychosis. And it, um, it's not just one thing. It can present in many ways. Yeah, Liz, do you have anything to add to that? No, I mean, I think those are good points. You know, I always want to put out there again that I'm not a licensed mental health professional. So because I've, I've had people who are most specifically doctors come back at me when I've had these conversations like you shouldn't be talking about this. You shouldn't be talking about people's diagnoses. And, you know, my response is, well, Google is accessible to everyone at this point. So, you know, pretty much anyone can have this conversation if they want to. But I think I think, yeah, it it can come in and out. I mean, I think it's just how I like to explain psychosis and how I like to explain even mental illness in general is that everyone has times when they experience some of this stuff 
But when you have a mental health issue, when you have a mental illness or psychosis, your ability to pull it back gets impaired. So it's not that these aren't experiences that everybody can have at one time or another. I mean, show me someone who hasn't felt paranoid about something at some point. But for me, I can't pull it back as easily, (laughs) you know, and it can go on for a really long time. Uh, I would like to ask, do you guys know the difference between a delusion and a hallucination? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, Rhea. Oh, well, hallucinations are um, sensory stimulus. So we can have auditory, olfactory, visual. Um, You can have um, tactile hallucinations. But a delusion is a false belief or idea that you believe with conviction. Um, And I think that is something that's so important to remember, that this delusion, this weird thing that's not reality, that we look at and go, what the heck? Why are they saying that? Or why do they believe that? It makes absolute sense in their mind and their brain is locked on it. There's not reason that pulls it out. So that's kind of the thing that is characteristic about delusion. Something that uh, Rhea brought up earlier about her husband that I can relate to. One of the delusions that I know my sister had quite a bit was very, you know, there are always like she thought Satan was talking to her. She thought God was talking to her. I mean, we would be in a crowded family gathering with like 30 people and she would pick somebody out and inform them they're going to hell and because Satan told her so. And that was, uh, you know, in her mind, like Rhea said earlier, I really connected with that because you would look at her and like she believed it with all her being. There was no, and I'm telling you, as a believer sitting there in Christ, you look at this person and can see the authenticity behind what they're saying and they really believe it it kind of scares you a little bit. It definitely will give you chills when you see that happen. I mean, it, well, it did early on when you didn't know what was really going on. But those, and that was something else I wanted you guys maybe to possibly address. What, something that's always baffled me is why there's such, every person that I've met that has suffered from some type of psychosis or things of that nature, there there tends to be a fixation on religion. And that is, um, I know my sister had a long period there and she still, she can't go to like, uh, you know, the church that you and I went to, Seth, when she goes there, when she leaves, it messes her up. Like she cannot handle that church service without leaving there with a very glazed over look in her eyes and kind of freaked out for the day. And it's like, there's something, there's something about religion that really, I don't know. It, it like, it, it really spikes something with the, with the illness. I don't know what it is, but and you mentioned delusions, and I, I made me think about all of the delusional things she would say about people's spiritual lives and, and let them know. It was very condemning. It was like it – and she would have voices tell her that she was going to hell too. It was uh, – there was a real fixation on, on hell and Satan. Um, she did one thing you said earlier too, Rhea. There was a time period where she mentioned that she was healed and that God told her she was healed. Uh, it's been a long time since that happened, but I remember that at one point. Um, and you cannot talk them out of it. You cannot talk them out of it. You, um, you know, you just, you try to get the doctors involved and whatnot. She hasn't been hospitalized now though. Thankfully for about two and a half years was the last time she was hospitalized, which kind of puts us all on edge because it seems to be about a two or three year cycle. And then she has to go back for a little while. And there's something about that two to three year number, but she's been doing really well though. Um, for the last year or so, well, she had a, I'll take that back. She had one brief period there 
with a guy she was dating that talked her into getting off her medications. Um, that's the kind of stuff that drives me insane when she gets with these guys that do things like that. Um, so you, I hope whatever guy she ends up with understands it. But, but anyway, I don't want to ramble on too much, guys. Well, the medication for this, for these types of disorders are, are not necessarily friendly on the body. Um, the side effects are, are absolutely horrible um, for a lot of people. Now, I'm assuming there are some meds that are okay, um, but for a lot of people, the meds are, I mean, that's the one thing. They, they stop their medication, uh, not only because they're feeling better, but also because the, the side effects are just so bad. Um, also, I, I found it interesting that you tied uh, these types of disorders with religion because I have seen it more times than I can count working for a county mental health crisis line. Um, I, there always is some type of fixation and I don't know what the, the exact tie is, but I would assume, uh, that it has something to do with seeking answers, right? Especially if they're having hallucinations, um, specifically auditory, you're seeking answers. You want to know what is this voice and why is it speaking and why is it doing this? And, uh, I think that drives a lot of that connection, but I don't. I can't say for certain. I don't know. Liz is smiling, so I don't know what's she going is. on over She's here. She's ready. So is Raya. You know the rabbit hole we're going to go down, though, if we talk about um, things, delusions that people can't be swayed from. But I'm just going to let that sit over to the side. It's just an interesting tie into religion. I find it interesting also because I've met people over the years that weren't Christian who had the same types of beliefs. I've met people who were Jewish who had that diagnosis, who for the most part, Jews don't believe in hell, but they were terrified of hell and also felt that Satan was talking to them uh, and that Satan was, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. There's a lot of things being attributed to Satan. Some explanations I've heard from that have been that, you know, cultural cultural influences and societal beliefs and things you've heard over the years will come into play. Uh, they get in there subconsciously and you're not necessarily aware of them, but then whatever is happening in the brain and the processing uh, when you have a mental illness, you know, kind of changes it, filters it around, does something to it. And so these things become more prominent. Um, but again, I think Chad said this in the beginning and I, I can't emphasize this enough. We have no idea why any of these things happen. <laughs> we have theories. We That's the best we can offer our theories. There is no right. concrete evidence for any of this. There are patterns. There are, you know, groups of people who behave in certain ways that show these patterns, but we can't say why any of this happens. We don't know. Science doesn't know. With the, with the fixation, it's amazing because even some of your charismatic churches as well that don't understand mental illness will also kind of have these false beliefs. I had a, one of our guitar players, young guy, 22, a few weeks ago, uh, somebody was talking about mental illness. I just happened to be there and he made the comment. He goes, yeah, I think any of this psychosis type things where people are hearing voices is all demonically influenced. He thought that anybody that was experiencing that had opened themselves up to demonic activity. And I, at this age of my life, I don't get offended very easily. So I'm like, Hey, a lot of people may disagree with that. And that's really all I said. 
I don't know if someone overheard it and pulled him aside or what, but today it was like two weeks later and he came to me today and apologized and he didn't say anything that he knew about me personally, but he just said, Hey man, I may have been wrong on that. And I, and I said, Hey, you you were, <laughs> I informed him that he was wrong, but it, but it's kind of like, you know, he was taught that somewhere along the way. He was yeah. obviously taught that people that hear voices or things of that nature are being demonically possessed or uh, some type of, They've opened the, the big word he used was they've opened themselves up to demonic activity. And I feel, I didn't tell him my story. He's too young for that. I think right now, but I'm like, I think to myself, so you're telling me my sister who was full on for Christ had just been saved and baptized six months before she opened herself up to demonic activity. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was actually right. The opposite. Chad, I, I, man, I just need to get out of Bible right now, <laughs> sir, <laughs> sir. Oh my gosh, that makes me so upset. So honestly, like I, um, I spent time in the Pentecostal church and I remember watching, you know, these preachers from South America and they're like, yeah, we were in the jungle and that's where all the real dark witchcrafty stuff is. And, you know, like definitely there was a lot of conversations about casting out demons and all that stuff during my right before middle schoolish years. So I was pretty familiar with that, although I'm pretty convinced that that is not really what's going on in, gosh, I probably was mostly mental illness and stuff in the past even. Uh, But anyway, I, so the night that Richie broke down, he had one outburst where he was basically yelling at the delusion. And um, I've talked about what his delusion is before he's been open about it, but there's one in particular that follows him around or whatever, or that is common for him. And it's like a guy who looks like a used car salesman, kind of that greasy, slick, like he wears a suit and he's kind of skeezy and he has slicked back hair and he's like pale skinned and all this stuff. And he has these yellow eyes and stuff. And so he yelled at it to just go away. And I was like, And at the time, I didn't know what I was supposed to do in that case. But I was like, well, where is it? You know, like, you need to tell me where it is. And he pointed towards the corner. And so I went and stood in the corner. And, like, the whole time I'm thinking, like, if this is demonic, like, why the fuck can't I, who is a daughter of Christ and a very spiritual person, why the fuck don't I feel anything? There ain't anything spiritual about this. Or at least not right now. I'm not going to say that there's nothing spiritual ever that happens. But, like... He was very much seeing it. And I was like, where is he? He's like, well, it's right next to you. And I'm like, uh-uh, this is not demonic. This is hospital. This is whatever last bit of doubt was in my head was like erased, you know, and then holding him while he's hearing these and asking if the house is burning and all this stuff. It's like, this is just a really hurting, scared person who is experiencing some really uh, fucked up shit in their mind. Sorry. We can cuss, right? Yeah. The guys okay. usually use the God, F word within so. the first can, minute. You, you can sleep it out if you need to, but um, some of this stuff, there's hey, nothing what? but curse words that can describe I don't, it. You know? Listen, I, I'm Sorry, hearing. Chad, if it's offensive. I, I'm hearing some shade being thrown shade, on the, uh, the shade, round table, shade. and uh, I just can't have that. About. <laughs> we are clean. There are no curse words. 
<laughs> we only say things that are pleasing to the Lord. I don't yeah. know what that is, but come I on know, now. I know. So I'm, I'm telling sorry. people that they're demon possessed. The check saying fuck, no good, <laughs> right? And like, so the other thing about like figuring out a schizophrenia and like any sort of mental disorder is you have to take the religion, the person's religious context. And the part that scares me now about Pentecostal stuff is not so much that I think it's bad to be charismatic or anything like that, but it's like how many people who are experiencing a legitimate mental illness were being ignored and having to go through things that were not real or, you know, they were experiencing things that the rest of their family wasn't or they weren't supposed to. You know, sorry, that wasn't God. That was the fact that you you know, are having a hallucination and there's not meaning in that. And that's, you know, a, there's so many things that are tied together. Like everything you could say is almost tied together. Making meaning of something is another symptom and they're all connected and it's so hard to break out of. So we've talked some about this, but um, what are some of the symptoms um, of schizophrenia and schizoaffective and well really we didn't talk about this either what's the difference between schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorders their disorders or illnesses how do they define that disorder is the term now right i i mean i am not super language police on these parts just because i haven't learned as much where history and stigma comes in liz would be a way better person to ask about that i am more of a Although I don't like the term language police, but I am I am more connected to just for yes. for background about that though. I, I live in a state where we have a very rich, very active grassroots movement known as the consumer expatient survivor movement. And it's really it really comes from those folks, the objection to some of the um terms that are used and the over medical model emphasis by medical model, I mean only interpreting these things through a medical lens and not looking at any of the other contributing factors. So that's, you know, they have influenced me greatly because uh, while I'm not opposed to medicine or even looking at these things through a medical lens, I'm opposed to the power that comes with the medical profession uh, using this and having the law back them on it to um, take away people's freedoms and take away uh, people's autonomy and take away people's uh, status, really, in our society. That's kind of where I go with that. But, you know, for, for the sake of this podcast and for the average listener, you know, these are, it's almost like it brings us a sense of relief, I think, to look at these things in a medical way, because we also believe that if it's medical, it can be fixed. And I think over time, we see that that's actually not the case. It can be helped, but medicine isn't fixing this any more than the churches. So that's my... I would, to piggyback off of that, I would say that the trauma-informed care movement in the United States is moving away from the medical model to a recovery model. I think recovery is what they're referring to. Yeah, 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 recovery model. Yeah, Uh, moving to a recovery model. And the whole idea is, and I'll be open and honest, as a licensed clinical social worker, you know, I can diagnose, um, but I've never been in a role where I have to do that. Um, I could have where I've been at, but I, I didn't choose that, that position. Um, but I am a, I kind of have an aversion to diagnosing in general. 
Um, I think we, we can look at signs and symptoms, um, but once we start diagnosing, I have seen so many people who receive a diagnosis and they limit their life to that diagnosis. Um, it's almost like we need to put a label on we, We're labeling everything and we're not only labeling everything, we're labeling people and we're saying, no, you are a schizophrenic or right. you are a bipolar. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, we need to, we need to change that. You're a person who struggles with schizophrenia. You're a person who has bipolar mm -hmm. disorder. Um, we need to change that language because it carries a lot of power. That tip that that can That's carry a very negative blow um, to a person's self-esteem and really how they view their future, you know. But sorry, I could get on a soapbox. No, yeah, that's, that's that's a separate podcast almost. <laughs> <laughs> Just for that alone. You told me that Seth when you first met me. I think when we first started talking about this on Marco Polo, and um, that really um, that honestly helped me a lot. And I I want you to know that because it. I think sometimes we have a natural tendency to almost identify our loved ones with that, with their disease or, or mental illness or whatever. And I, you may not even do it on purpose or like, not that you look down on them or anything, but just right. it, it's just kind of, um, I don't know for me, it's, you know, like the Bible says, your words are powerful and just that alone should tell me, I don't want to constantly speak that over her life. You know, I, I want her to not realize she's not, that's not her identity. It's just something she's suffering with. Right. She has the signs and symptoms, but that that just that label doesn't mean that that's all that she's limited to, or that she can't do this or she can't do that because she has this disorder. It's like, okay, come on. And uh, can I go one more thing here? Cause I'm on a roll. Um, I don't know if this is, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is a thing and this is what's happening in the trauma informed care movement. But I personally like to shy away from the word mental illness. I hate it um, because I feel like it limits a person. Um, I would rather use language that says this is a person who struggles with mental health concerns. Okay, yeah, I, I have medical concerns too. Like, um, but this whole idea of mental illness or uh, it just it carries a weight with it that I think sends a horrible connotation and, and further pulls people down. Um, I, I like to look at diagnosis not as limiting, but as informing, so we can improve on that. And we have a real history, too, of how those that particular label has been used against people. So that's, uh, you know, absolutely. I, I, I caved. I end up using it just because everyone around me uses it, and you just, and it's a habit. I mean, I was, I was schooled just like everyone else. These are the this is the terminology that you learn. And I think it's, I think the stance I try to take about this at this point is what does someone prefer? Because there are plenty of people who don't mind it and who don't have an issue with it and who it actually helps being able to categorize things and put it into these, you know, uh, it put it into perspective in ways that are helpful to them. I'm not one of those people, but there are people who don't mind it, just like people don't mind being called patient or client or any, you know, so I just... I try to be sensitive to what is it that that person finds helpful. You know, for family members, this is a level of suffering that's different from what it's like to be the person with the actual diagnosis. And I happen to wear both of those hats because I am related to quite a few family members who have pretty significant mental health issues. And, um, you know, they would never refer to themselves as crazy, not because of the political correctness of that, but because 
they don't believe that they are. So <laughs> they wouldn't use that term. Um, so, I mean, I'm with you, Seth. I think the trauma-informed trauma informed care, basically, that movement is just looking at the impact of trauma, particularly from childhood, but also in adulthood. And it seeks to, you know, not over-medicalize everything and just make everything be about, you know, this illness that you're saddled with. But research now shows, and actually science can show this, that the brain changes the way that it functions as a result of trauma. And I think that's important. Right. And we not only are seeing people who are presenting with mental health symptoms and we're giving them a label, we're giving them a diagnosis and we're putting them on medication when the real issue is trauma. But that's not... That's outside of the discussion we're having, you know, in regards to schizophrenia, but. Absolutely. And then I think when we do put labels on things, then we end up boxing ourselves in and maybe we're not looking for other symptoms that we might be missing because we're like, oh, well, I have depression. Right. Not realizing, oh, I'm also experiencing hypomania. So I don't just have depression and it's important for me to tell my doctor that I have these symptoms because they, you know, a, an antidepressant for someone with bipolar can not, can be a really bad thing. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's just my little add on. And I'd like to mention the average age, just to just throwing this out there, yeah. the average age for the onset of schizophrenia um, is 23. So we've been talking about these kids that are really young, um, but the average age is 23. Uh, One half of all lifetime cases of mental health concerns began at age 14. Three-fourths of them happened by age 24. So when we're looking at the onset of mental health concerns, it happens soon um, in a person's life. Um, But 23 for schizophrenia. It's usually connected to some sort of life change, some sort of some sort of significant stressor will kick it off. And that's about the age where, you know, people are either wrapping up college or wrapping up grad school or, you know, getting married, getting married. Yeah, yeah. there's any number of milestone things that we, you know, tend to do at that age that can be the thing that kicks it off. Yeah, and that's why that hitting at that age is so important to know what's going on there and what the symptoms look like because, you know, catching it earlier is supposed to be uh, related to a better prognosis as far as recurrence. Um, I know with Richie's doctor, he said several times, you know, like as many times as I've seen this, the more times that you have these psychotic episodes or devolve into a state where you are... Um, really into the psychosis part of it, the harder it is to get out. And so if we have a 23 year old that's just married and, you know, he's experiencing some of the early signs, it's so important for him and his wife to get that, you know, talk to someone as quickly as they can. So it's really important to know what they are. Let's just talk really quickly about the fact that Schizophrenia is way more prevalent than a lot of disorders that or diseases that we think it is. So schizophrenia is two times more prevalent than Alzheimer's. It's five times more prevalent than multiple sclerosis. It is six times more prevalent than insulin-dependent diabetes. And it is 60% more prevalent than muscular dystrophy. And most people have heard of all of those things and know far more about them than they do about 
uh, schizophrenia. So I think that is something that is really important to remember, especially when you're, if you happen to meet someone with it, it's not that uncommon. Oh, that's what struck me as we've been discussing this um, in our own private conversations, just how many people are touched by this, either with a family member or themselves or a lot more people than we really realize. It used to be like 1% of the population. That was the most common statistic. But even if you use that number, think about how many people live in this country. What's Mm -hmm. 1% of the total population of the people who live in this country? That's a lot of people. (laughs) That is way more common than people realize. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, and Rhea, maybe you and Liz can chime in on this. What has blown my mind over the last 19 years, and especially after getting to to know you guys, is that the lack of people that have come forward in, in my family's life with stories like you have. Because it's like, we felt very alone for many years. Like it was like, we felt like no one really understood, you know, and the the churches we were part of, things of that nature. We could not find one person with stories like yours that could come alongside of us and say, hey, uh, we get it. We know what you're going through. And that's what I want to be to people is that because that was the number one thing we were missing. And that's what I love about your podcast, Rhea. Um, I really I'm four episodes in, but I really enjoyed it for that aspect. I'm like, wow, there are people. I know we could have really used that, you know, 19 years ago when that set in. And yeah. so what is the deal? Is it just a stigma that no one, you think, you think families suffer with it? They just don't talk about it? Or do you think that's what the problem is? Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Ray. No, it's fine. Um, it's, it's scary. Um, and then you have people who, I also want to protect my spouse. I don't want people to think all sorts of things about him. He's like this big six foot four, big burly guy. You know, he could easily look scary on the outside, but he's the most gentle person I think I've ever met. And I think it's partially because of all the things that he's experienced that he has so much empathy for other people and so much um, just kindness. But then, you know, he's, he ends up mostly being scared instead of you know <laughs> aggressive. And it's just, it's crazy. And we just want to p- put these people into closets. And, you know, it, how many times have we heard of the son that, the, the, the basement son, you know, who lives in the basement, his mom's basement, and he pretty much is just online and does all that stuff. So like, you could have all sorts of people who just like that weird uncle or, you know, the, the kid that stays, stays in the basement. And, Um, A lot of people with schizophrenia, the paranoia keeps them out of society's view. So they naturally kind of hide themselves away. And then we're not going to pull them out in front of everyone. And look at my weird, my weird husband or my weird brother. You know, it just, we don't do it because it's scary and we don't want to be the weird ones. But I mean, I like to be weird. So it's been a real balance in our family. I know my parents have really made an effort to give her what they would call a normal life. I mean, like we all went on vacation together back in May. We all went to Florida. She was with us. She slept in the bedroom right next to us in the condominium. And she had an episode while we were gone um, where she thought that there were demons in her bedroom. And so that uh, created a conversation with my daughters who are both spiritual. You know, they're both Christ followers. So, you know, that actually created a very healthy conversation on the 12 hour drive back home (laughs) that we got to have. But but it's just, I, I credit my parents for that. They've done some things wrong, I think, with her care that I, I will do different when I'm responsible for her one day. 
But at the same time, they have really made a real effort to, to bring her out and give her a normal life. But it, of course, it's, um, you know, you learn who your true friends are and you learn who really cares about you and your family when, when, people, when people see things like that. As I know, you've, you, you being married uh, to someone like that, Rhea, I, I know you experience it day in and day out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. You ready, Seth, with some symptoms? Yes. Um, but before I do that, I want to just piggyback. Um, we previously talked about psychosis. Um, and, and the way this uh, material is actually organized is actually groups it under psychosis and goes through all of it. Um, and so the material I'm going to quote here is actually from Mental Health First Aid for America. Um, they're an organization that does an actual eight-hour training. Um, think of uh, CPR, right? Um, they're teaching you what to look for and how to intervene. That's what mental health first aid does. Um, and so we're going to read just a little bit from um, their section because I think this can be really helpful. Um, psychosis is a general term used to describe a mental health problem in which a person has lost some contact with reality, resulting in severe disruptions in thinking, emotion, and behavior. Psychosis can have a severe impact on a person's life, Relationships, work, school, other usual activities, and self-care can be difficult to initiate or maintain. Um, and so I want to just really quick go over some, some of uh, the signs and symptoms. Um, in thinking of disorders with, in which psychosis can occur, you might imagine someone who is very out of touch with reality, perhaps talking to themselves or expressing concerns about being watched. This is certainly an accurate description of some people with these disorders, but you may also see the following signs that could indicate that psychosis may be a problem. Um, so if like a young person is expressing things that are becoming increasingly secretive or avoid answering questions, spend more time alone in their bedroom, begin expressing strange ideas, have sudden outbursts or explosive highly emotional reactions, appear changed in a way that you cannot quite describe. It is important not to dismiss a gut feeling that something is not quite right. Uh, they may experience an auditory hallucination um, and sometimes try to drown them out. For example, a young person may listen to music on headphones and refuse to take them off when talking to family members or eating a family meal, or turn the television up to a loud volume and react angrily when asked to turn it down. Um, if they're at school, they may appear unmotivated, distance themselves from peers, show a decline in completing work, have inappropriate or no reactions to others, uh, and do things to kind of drown out uh, what they're experiencing. They also may notice, and this is true of almost all disorders, but specifically with this one, in social situations, a young person may withdraw from friends, use drugs or other alcohol, um, or use alcohol or other drugs to dull unfamiliar feelings and upsetting emotions, appear not to react or react uh, inappropriately to friends, and appear suspicious or accuse friends of acting against them. Um, and a, a, a good thing to keep in mind here um, is those are a lot of symptoms, and just having one or two does not mean that you have psychosis uh, or that you're at risk of having psychosis. We want to look at these symptoms and look at it as a whole, right? Um, we're not looking at one or this other one or because like one of these have sudden outbursts or explosive, highly emotional reactions. Well, I had one over Thanksgiving. Does that mean that I'm going to ha have psychosis? No, 
It does not. Um, so you want to look at this as a whole. But you're kind of looking at a sudden change in behavior, looking at withdrawal, experiencing things that aren't there, and delusions are the primary symptoms to, to look for. Yeah, I would say it's also just really important to talk to someone like who has some experience in it, if you are wondering, because like for Richie, part of his hallucinations is like he'll see people's faces melting off. And so he'll have a really hard time looking me in the eye when he's psychotic or when he's experiencing some psychosis. So it's like paying attention to the little subtle cues that, oh, you know what? I think something's bugging him. And that is usually my first like indicator um, when he's not able to look me in the eyes anymore or hold on a conversation very long or he's like losing track of stuff because it's it's really hard to stay organized and concentrate when you have a lot of extra stimulus going on in your brain and trying to pretend that you're not. So it takes a lot of energy. And so you can definitely tell by how much they're able to give back how much is actually going on inside. That's a really good point, Rhea. Thanks for sharing that. And well, and I, I think talking about these signs and symptoms is really important, but I also think I don't want to leave it there. Um, I want to talk about some things that like, if you encounter someone that may have a mental health condition or may be experiencing some form of psychosis, like some tips, you know, on what to do. Um, and Rhea, obviously you have a ton of lived experience. Um, so I'm sure that you have a lot to add to this as well. Um, but the mental health first aid material does go over some do's and don'ts. Um, and I just want to touch on that very quickly. I hope that's okay. Oh, please yeah, go do. for it. We were going to run through some help. So this is perfect. So like try to understand the symptoms for what they are and not something else. State the specific behaviors you are concerned about. Being specific is so important. Using general vague terms can get very confusing and make things more difficult. Empathize with how the person feels about their beliefs and experiences, even if the person you're talking to is saying something that makes absolutely no sense to you. Um, you don't want to automatically discredit it. Um, you want to empathize with the person. Um, let them know that you're hearing them and that you believe that what they believe is scary or upsetting or whatever's happening there. Adjust your verbal and nonverbal communication to the person's concerns. Um, they are suspicious in avoiding eye contact. Be sensitive to this and give them the space that they need. Um, some things not to do, and I think this is really important because some of this is not automatically obvious. Um, do not challenge the person or their beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, if they're telling you something that doesn't make sense, fighting them on that battle is not going to help. Fighting them on that hill is not going to work. Um, so do not challenge the person or their beliefs. Do not criticize or blame them for what they're experiencing. Do not take delusional comments personally. Um, they may have a delusion or even hallucinations for that matter that specifically involve you. Mm -hmm. um, do not take that personally. It's not about you. I hate to say, I'm not trying to say that in a mean way, but it's literally not about you. Right. We need to know that. <laughs> um, do not use sarcasm. It does not always work. Um, do not use patronizing statements. 
do not state any judgments about the content of the individual's beliefs or experiences. This is a big one. And I struggle with this one. Even at work, I do this and I get told not to. But do not touch the young person without their permission. I'm like one of those guys that I always like, you know, like if I'm walking through the contact center at my job, I like, you know, lay a hand on someone's shoulder, like you're doing a good job. That's not a good thing to do. Do not do that. Um, and do not speculate about a diagnosis or their diagnosis. Okay. You don't want anyone doing that to you. Let's not do that to them. Those are just some tips, you know, on, on things to, to try or, or do not do. Thanks, Seth. So, um, what are, what do you ladies, um, Rhea, Liz, even Seth, you can chime in again. What are some books or are there groups out there or websites or is there help out there? Uh, because you mentioned in the eighties and nineties, like this was a, just such a taboo subject, but as uh, in the last 20 years, we've really, I think we've made progress as a culture in the United States. Maybe, I don't know about the world, but uh, we've definitely taken steps to make this uh, mental health something that we actually talk about. So what are some helps that you have, book suggestions, websites, that type of thing? Um, first of all, this book, Surviving Schizophrenia, is amazing. It's one of the most recommended books as far as just understanding it and like different tips about living with schizophrenia, um, things like that. Um, it has been so helpful. I have so many things underlined. I have a couple of copies of it because, um, so I can loan them out or keep one in the car and keep one at home. Um, because it definitely helps me and when there's an emergency to remember that this is not the first time it's happened. It's not the last time it's happened and it's happened to a lot of different people. We're going to get through this, you know, it's survivable, you know, schizophrenia is not, going to kill you in and of itself. Now, could it cause you to do something where you could harm yourself or be in danger? Of course, but it's not going to kill you. And so it's like, it's helpful. And it's a great reminder that there is, you know, it's like literally the subtitle of it is a family manual. People survive and live with this all the time. What about helps for the family? I'm thinking specifically of NAMI, Rhea. And you mentioned that to me at one point. Is that Helpful. Yeah, I have found the NAMI family to family courses extremely helpful. Um, I know for some people, they may not be. Um, Liz, are you muted? If you're trying to talk, you're muted. Okay. Um, so for me, just because seeing, oh, wow, you know, here's all these other families who are dealing with it in real time. These are real people. Um, and just hearing their stories and how they dealt with different situations. Um, I know I went, went to one of the um, support groups. So there's a family to family course, which is free and it's like 12 weeks long and really teaches you a lot of information. Um, but then there's just the support groups where basically it would be like an AA meeting type thing where you just get to go and talk and, and share a little bit about your story if you want to. Um, and that is either for family members of people with mental illness or uh, they have two separate groups. So you can go there and get support from other people with mental illnesses. But um, I really liked the family support group. It's really hard because you're going to listen to some really hard stories and you have to face the fact that that could be in your future. 
And so I would definitely recommend just preparing yourself mentally for that. You know, I'm a spouse and there's not a lot of spouses of people with schizophrenia or schizoaffective. Um, so I was listening to a lot of parents say that, you know, they had a son who lives downtown and he, I don't know if you've ever seen the bike with the trailer with, you know, this, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Some, apparently it's some really, everybody spots him because he drives this really funky trailer around and his parent, he doesn't want anything to do with his parents. And he chooses to live on the street because he's, um, in a paranoid state and he doesn't have insight into his illness. And so his parents just get texts from random people who are like, hey, I spotted your son today. Just wanted you to know he's still he still looks healthy or he's still alive, you know? And it's like, oh my God, I'm so glad that Richie knows that he's sick and that he's like, he trusts me to help him or to walk with him, you know, whatever that looks like. And so it was really helpful. Um, but I know that there's also a lot of um, difficult situations in those. So it's really something that... It's a great resource if that's the right one for you. What about um, help for people who may be struggling with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder? What, um, I said that really weird, schizophrenia, schizophrenia, I'm sorry. I don't know. Some people say schizophrenia and some people say schizophrenia. The uh -huh. phrenia, like that vowel sound irritates me. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> I just started taking Prozac a week ago and I can feel when I'm coming down and need to take it again. Like I take it around 10 o'clock at night and like, I feel myself like drain going <laughs> and my brain can't put words together. <laughs> it gets worse. <laughs> so I apologize for that. Uh, help for people with, with this, um, with this disorder. What can they do to help themselves? Um, you mentioned um, awareness, uh, self-awareness, but how how do you get there? Are there therapists out there to help with this type of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, think about the fact that, like, if you don't have insight into your illness, which is a, a problem with some of these more psychotic illnesses that you or disorders or, you know, states of being, it's like you don't even know that you're sick. And so what a scary place to be in. You know, you really have to trust your family members. And that's why I think it's so important for community education and for everyone to just kind of say, hey, you know what? Like, if you do, that's fine. Let's talk about it and let's get you help. Like, let's, we can talk, to, you can talk to your primary care physician. You can talk to a therapist um, uh, to get started and someone can recommend treatment. But if you're in a crisis, there's crisis centers that you can call. Right, Seth? <laughs> yes. Yes, there are. In fact, um, I would just like to throw out Suicide Lifeline um, is always a good place to call. They will literally take any call. It doesn't, you do not, it doesn't have to be about suicide um, or that type of thing to call Suicide Lifeline. Um, it is anything from homelessness to depression to uh, psychosis. If you need support, Suicide Lifeline is a great place to go. Not only will they help with that initial crisis, but they also will help get you linked to resources in your area. And the way it actually works is actually kind of cool. Um, Suicide Lifeline, uh, when you call, um, it goes by your phone number and it routes you to the nearest uh, call center closest based upon your phone number. Um, so you ensures that you're getting the resources that are going to be the most helpful for you. Just throwing that out, Suicide Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. 
I uh, hope you don't mind the plug, but I always want to plug that because I think it can really help. And uh, over three and a half years working for a crisis line, I can say uh, lives are, are saved. Lives are changed. As cheesy as that is, it's, it's a reality and it's true. And uh, the counselors there are there for you. Um, for specific treatment for schizophrenia, I would say one of the number one protective factors across the board is a support system. Having people that you can call, having people that can recognize when you are struggling if you yourself cannot. Uh, medication is really the crucial component uh, to treatment with these signs and symptoms. Um, so, and I, I would also recommend treatment uh, in form, the form of medication for the delusions and the hallucinations, but also medication to help with depression uh, or anxiety that may accompany those symptoms. Education is huge, both for yourself and your family. Um, a lot of community centers, NAMI is huge for that. Um, and I also would recommend cognitive behavioral therapy. I think it can really help. But above all of that, wraparound services. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of wraparound services where you are not only receive, receiving psychiatry, but you're also receiving case management and physical health care all together wrapped up into one, um, potentially including therapy as well. I think wraparound is the way to go in regards to treatment options. But that's coming from me who works on a crisis line and I see people struggle. Wraparound services save lives. Yeah, actually, Seth, really quickly, one of the time, I think it was the first time or maybe the second time, I didn't know what to do. And so I called the crisis line mm -hmm. for Richie. And it yeah. was like, oh, I can call. And they were like, okay, well, here's some tips and here's yeah. some information. I was like, oh, my God, thank you. Because it was like, I was didn't think I should call 911, but I didn't know who to call. And so I called them and they were super helpful. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, it was such an amazing, like, baby step or, like, middle ground to, like, okay, well, I, it's beyond me, but it's, I don't think it's 911, so help me. <laughs> it's very helpful. I don't know the specific percentage, but I know that over 20, I know it's at least 25%, over 25% of our calls are from third parties. Family members calling, we don't know what to do. Yeah, and I think people forget about that when they see that suicide lifeline. Like, everyone should have it in their phone. You never know when you're going to have to call and ask about a friend or a family member if uh, or a situation comes up where you just don't know what the hell to do. And the good thing is all of that is confidential and it's free. And it's 24-7, 365. One of my cheesy lines that I always give is I'm always like, you can call us anytime, 24-7. You can even call us at 3 o'clock in the morning. I can promise you that someone's going to answer that phone. But it will not be me. I will be asleep. But I can tell you someone will be there. <laughs> put my number in your phone. Thank you. Liz, do you have any final thoughts? I do. I have a lot of final thoughts, actually. Um, just to add, to add on to, I, I mean, I think the reason why we wanted to even do this segment is because, you know, just in conversations that we've we've all had in different ways, you know, it's the misunderstanding and the stigma that leads to, you know, downright discrimination and prejudice towards folks you know, warranted wanting to have this conversation. Like people are being harmed because society in general is uncomfortable talking about this. And I think 
because of that, that's why this conversation was so important. And I hope it's not the last time we talk about this. Having said that, you know, I always, I've spent a lot of time developing perspectives on this. And while I agree with everything that was said, I do think it's worth throwing out there that there are whole movements out there that have alternate ways of looking specifically at the experience of psychosis. Um, And, you know, it is very culturally specific for one. So how we interpret that in this country and from a very westernized medical perspective is very different than how other cultures or even some cultures within this country will look at it. So I think that's worth noting. There are whole groups of people who don't see this necessarily as something that needs to be medicated and suppressed. Ironically, that kind of ties in a little bit to, you know, the way that religion tends to treat this is that, you know, it could be something spiritual of nature. It's just that we take it then to the point where you're, you know, you're demon possessed and your your faith isn't strong enough and you're not praying hard enough. And, you know, we do more harm out of an attempt, I think, to actually help people. Like nobody wants to see someone be harmed or be sick. Like nobody's looking to do that. So we fall all over ourselves to figure out what's happening because we're uncomfortable. So when you are approached by someone who may be in the throes of a psychotic um, time and they're not making sense and they're angry and they're afraid and all of that, our knee jerk is usually not helpful. So I think when we look at ways to support people, Seth definitely touched on something that I'm a fan of, which is natural supports. I think that is absolutely essential. And the reason why not enough people have it is because we're afraid of this. I think I was talking to uh, you and Rhea Elizabeth about this. Like we have this love hate relationship with being crazy in our society. You know, we write songs about the awesomeness of being crazy, you know, Prince and all these other songs of how great it is to lose control, but nobody actually wants to be crazy. (laughs) Nobody really wants that diagnosis and all the ramifications that come with it. Um, So I think we have a lot of that going on. And I think the only way this is going to stop is for, society, meaning everybody else, they need to get their shit together. (laughs) Like stop being so afraid. Stop putting false things together, like the violence uh, stereotype, because I don't remember if it was Seth who said it, or it might've been Chad, but most people who have particularly the schizophrenia diagnosis, they got too much other shit going on (laughs) to be running out and picking up a gun and doing these mass shootings. That is not the group we're talking about do some research, go online, look at some reliable sources. As much as I have a love-hate relationship with NAMI, I think they do put a lot of good stuff out there. I worked for them for five years, so my my issues with them are probably more internal and not that they don't do good work, you know, and that they're not supportive of the family. I actually ran that family-to-family education group, but I also did some of their other stuff, like their NAMI Connection support group, which is for the people with the Uh, issues themselves, I found very helpful. It's structured really well. It has a good format to it. And it's people living, you know, with the lived experience of these issues, helping others. Because I think that the peer support is very essential. Having people you can talk to who have some frame of reference for what you're going through is just as helpful, in my opinion, as talking to the professionals. 
And while I do think, you know, wraparound services are a good thing, I think I get nervous about that because I think this country in particular is in the business of keeping people sick. And while I don't think social workers or clinicians are doing that necessarily, I think there's a lot of money that gets poured into the pharmaceutical industry. And it's kind of a self-perpetuating system where we just have, you know, it is financially lucrative to keep people in these roles. So sometimes we can wrap services around people to the point where that's the only thing that they have. They're not living lives and they're not living lives in the way that we would like to live them personally. So, you know, if every single thing that a person has going on in their life revolves in and out of the mental health system, I would challenge us that maybe they're not really living life because their social life, you know, everything that they do socially is at the mental health program. And every piece of advice they get is from a mental health professional and every interaction they have. And maybe that's not so much of an issue in the private mental health system, but it is for sure an issue in the public mental health system where people get trapped and they will spend their entire lives in that system. So where you can go into any other type of doctor and use that as you wish, you're not given that freedom. You become the perpetual patient. And those are things that give me pause. I think we need to really take a look at that. Um, that isn't going to give anybody an answer of what to do, but I think these are things we need to consider. The Hearing Voices Network is a movement that started, I want to say in Scotland, but I could be wrong about that, but it is a self-help movement that seeks to teach people how to explore these experiences and maybe learn how to live with them and not just take the perspective that they need to suppress it with medication and that this is something to be feared, but rather what can you learn from it? What is it teaching you? <laughs> and how can you learn to accommodate it? So I, I recommend the Hearing Voices Network. I know a lot of people who've used it and they have found it very helpful. Um, and NAMI, Mental Health America, also helpful. Um, and the, the book that Seth was reading out of the uh, Mental Health First Aid, that's a decent class for lay people, you know, to understand how to interact with people. You know, how do you have a conversation some, with someone who's hearing voices? What do you do? What do you say? What do you not do? They're, they're very good at laying out a blueprint for that. So those are my thoughts. Awesome. Thank you very much, Rhea. You have something else? Uh, no. No, I just have actual situations happening. Um, one of my friends who is like, has been one of my guiding forces through this, uh, her husband is in, uh, he's with team five, which is basically the psychiatric emergency ward here at Providence, Portland. Um, but they are talking about transferring him without his, and he really does not want to go to another facility because at Providence, Portland, there are currently 16 people ahead of him waiting for psychiatric beds. So what that means is 16 people have to graduate out and go, you know, be released before they are going to get to somebody who's been there since yesterday for suicidal ideation. So, um, yeah, yeah. it's not surprising, unfortunately. And uh, yeah. So it's insane right now. And we have like major problems going on with one of our psychiatric hospitals. Unity is like, I think just got cleared, but basically they shut down two hospital psych wards to go into this new, like specialized care treatment facility. And it ended up being a disaster. And so 
the the mental health crisis in Portland is awful it's off the chains um so yep just dealing with that stuff and that happens in real time all the time (laughs) chad do you have any final thoughts or anything like that yeah definitely i mean i'm just kind of i'm taken aback by the whole thing it's like it's um i i really wish my family would have had people like you guys to talk to over the years i matter of fact the surviving schizophrenia book i just texted my mom i thought for sure i'm like Surely she's seen this book, right? Nope, never heard of it. And I'm just thinking to myself, that book's been out since what, 1983? Mm-hmm. And no one's ever told her about it. And I'm, I'm just kind of like, and then I said, hey, do you want me to get you a copy? And of course, their first thing is always, she, she's so protective of my sister. Her first thing is, she goes, yeah, but don't let your sister know you're talking about it with me. And it's, you have to keep that very on the DL. You got to be down low about it, you know? And I'm like, well, I'm going to buy a copy. And the, the manual as well that Seth, mentioned i'm gonna get that too i mean just because you know i I, we didn't get into this but even like my own personal battle with you know minor mental illness just knowing it's in my family i think it's important to have a book like that on hand just to recognize uh symptoms of whatever the mental illness might be um but yeah i i'm really this is awesome guys and like liz said i hope you continue the conversation in some extent and uh, continue to educate each other and just having this support system because I'm sure as we all get to know each other more over the coming years we'll have situations pop up where we'll need each other's support even more so that's um anyway what you guys are doing is awesome I think thanks for joining us Chad and Liz and Rhea we're going to be bringing them back for another interview in the future I've got some stuff I want to talk to them about that has not as much to do with mental health, although it's put me in where I am. No, sorry. Anyway, I'm not bitter. We can, we can go there. I don't have issues. Wait, no, wait. Um, so Seth and the guys, thanks for letting us take over for an episode. We really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, this was cool. Thanks, also, guys. I want to say I feel honored that I was welcome on the female episode. And me too. <laughs> all the other guys should be jealous. As you should. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you find yourself in need of help, please feel free to call the Suicide Lifeline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. And just like Seth and Rhea said, these guys are trained professionals who know how to help you in your time of need. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to share our podcast with your friends and rate and review our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. You can follow Fade to Gray on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and join the conversation with us on Marco Polo. And do you know what? We have a website too. It's not much to look at just yet. We're still working on it, but we were able to put up a store with some really cool merch on it. So go ahead and check out fadetograypodcast.com. You'll see some pretty cool bios and some awesome merch. You can also find Rhea's podcast, The Depth of Echoes, wherever you download your podcast. You can also find her on Facebook and Instagram at Depth of Echoes. Thanks to Rhea, Liz, Chad, and Seth for helping me take over See you soon.